The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Since election night, a lot of people have been confusing voters by spinning Kenyan birther-type Chavez rigged the election from the grave conspiracy theories. But every American who cares about the rule of law should take comfort that the Supreme Court, including all three of President Trump's picks, the Supreme Court closed the book on this nonsense. You thought that was my opinion, didn't you? (laughs) I fooled you. That's Nebraska Senator Ben Sass's statement upon hearing that the Supreme Court had refused to hear the Texas-generated case against the votes of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Georgia voters, urging that all those voters be disenfranchised, have their votes thrown out, because Texas didn't like the results in those four states. Well, the court issued a terse ruling late on Friday. The state of Texas's motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied for lack of standing under Article 3 of the Constitution. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. All other pending motions are dismissed as mute. Well, Justices Alito and Thomas, the original originalists, suggested that the court really was obligated under Article 3 to at least, you know, have them actually hear the case. And some people wanted to cling to that, saying it was not a unanimous ruling from the Supreme Court. But it was a unanimous ruling because in their little procedural concern, those two justices went on. They went way out of their way to reject the arguments contained in the filing, writing that they would, and I'm going to quote, grant no relief to the plaintiffs on the merits of the case, end quote. So all of that boils down for we lay folk, you know, in other words, cognizable, that means reasonable to all of the rest of us who are not lawyers. For all we lay folk, the Supreme Court is not going to interject itself into the 2020 presidential election. Put a fork in it. Joe Biden won this election and he won it fair and square. Every recount and recount of the recount has shown that. And none of the president's strategies to overturn, and I use the word overturn in the true sense of the word, which is to reverse the will of the people, okay? None of those strategies, and there were several, none of those strategies succeeded. And they started way back last summer when 
Trump's henchman, Louis DeJoy, made an effort to sabotage the U.S. postal system so that it would take longer to deliver the mail and mail-in ballots would be received after the election deadline in various states. Because it was clear by summer that the pandemic would cause an increase in the number of people who voted by mail. It was a safety and health issue. But the president knew mail-in voters, by and large, additional mail-in voters would not be his voters. Now, what's strange about that is that the original concept by which a huge number of Republicans have voted at how a minority party gets a majority of the vote has been through mail-in ballots. That's true in California. That is true in Florida. There are six states that do only mail-in ballots. Those were largely conservative movement efforts, but that was a, a, a concern to the Trump administration way back last summer. So when the courts and Congress intervened in that one, and that strategy failed, the president began to undermine the confidence of voters in mail-in balloting, leading to massive early voting. In fact, in Georgia, the Secretary of State has argued that all the president's uh, naysaying about mail-in ballots may in fact have cost him Georgia's uh, 13 or so electoral votes. I, and I don't quote me on 13. It could be more, one more or one less. <clears throat> but <clears throat> the confidence of voters in the Republican Party in mail-in balloting was diminished. And the overall confidence of voters in mail-in balloting led to massive early voting. So early voting began nearly a month before the election. And as we like to say when we talk about get out the vote, those votes were in the can early in October before the president's flurry of closing rallies. Those decisions were made. Anything that happened in October didn't change those votes. And then then seeing that early massive vote, early vote, they, the Trump campaign turned to what they called their red mirage strategy. That's the strategy where Trump urged his voters to vote in person so that then on election night, he could declare, look, I'm ahead, stop the counting. But you can't stop the counting because those are state laws that determine you have to have your ballot in before mailed in has to be in the hands of the, of the election officials by election day in some states, by three days after, as long as it's postmarked on election day before eight o'clock, three days after. In California, we really do understand how bad the mail is. We give them 17 days, but you still have to have mail, have have had your ballot postmarked by the by eight o'clock on election night. And you know what happened 
to all of those strategies because, in fact, state law requires that you count not just the ballots that were cast on election day, but all the ballots. Every state, whatever their difference in exactly how they do it, every state individually says, we're going to count all the absentee or mail-in or provisional ballots. And here are the rules under which we as a state have agreed we are going to do that. So the red mirage, like all the previous strategies, failed. So what did the president do? Was he gracious in defeat, especially when you have to recognize how much larger his defeat was than his victory? He won with a plurality of the overall vote in 2016, I believe about 47%. Don't quote me on that. It could be 48, less than 50. <clears throat> Joe Biden won with 51% of the vote, a clear majority. But nonetheless, the president, as he's entitled to, as he threatened to do if he were not the winner, okay, said he would turn to the courts. And he turned to the courts, not once, not twice, 50 times. And at this point, there are about six or seven that have not been totally settled. But at this point, he's won exactly one. And that allowed uh, observers in Pennsylvania to move a couple of feet closer to the actual election floor. It's jeopardizing, by the way, the safety of the people who were counting you know, that little problem we have about masks now being, instead of being a public health issue, becoming a political matter, okay? So the courts, including a great number of opinions that were written by Trump-nominated federal judges, as well as the three Supreme Court ju justices <clears throat> appointed in the last four years, you know what they said? They said, no. As I said, with the exception of letting those electors peer from two feet closer, they said no to everything, everything that the Trump campaign threw up. What they kept on telling the Trump campaign was, we are a country of laws, not of men. We go by the law. We may, the law is blind. And so it appears that the electors will meet in the several state capitals today, Monday, December 14th, and certify the election of Joseph R. Biden, the 46th president of the United States with 306 electoral votes to 232 for President Trump. All that said, the bottom line, the constitutional system held the constitutional process for the orderly transition of power from one president to the next held. But God, it just barely held. And that should concern us all. For the first time in modern history, electors arriving in state capitals will be provided police escorts in response to threats of violence against them and their families. These people are just volunteer political activists. 
you know, it's a big honor if you're a central committee member or 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 such or or an activist who's supported a candidate, it's a big honor to be asked to be an elector. That's a recognition of your service to the candidate. For the first time, these people have to think about their personal safety as they arrive to do their sworn duty. And just this past Saturday, the Proud Boys were in Washington, D.C. again, marching in defiance of public health and public safety. Their weapons visible as they enjoyed an aerial salute from Marine One as President Trump passed over on his way to um, flip the coin at the Army-Navy game. Of course, I remember the 100,000 women marching in Washington the day after Trump's inaugural, you might say, in retort. But their little pink hats were more a promise to resist a misogynist than a threat to resort to violence. None of them were out to, quote, the Proud Boy leadership yesterday. None of them were out to, quote, get Joe Biden, unquote. As the knitter of many hats myself, I am initially found those little pink hats sadly amateurish. You know, two squares sewed together, just not the way you make it, that you knit a hat. It was, in fact, a full year before I understood the meaning behind that odd construction. But what concerns me the most is not the proud boys. It's not the ham-handed efforts of the president to weaken the bounds of constitutional authority. No, what worries me the most is the behavior of Congress. We've got a five-seat majority for the Democrats, which gives moderate Republicans real power to shape legislation in a way that actually serves the 80% of American people who live in the center of American politics, in the art of compromise, okay? And that would be a big change from the last three years where bills either couldn't pass out of the House, or if they did pass out of the House, they were so far oriented toward left-wing policy that the Senate automatically became their graveyard. H.R. 3 is a good example. And I, and, and I believe that was a merciful death. A five-seat majority means that what you're going to be able to get is narrowly crafted legislation. That, that's legislation that can attract support from both sides of the aisle. And what that means is that at last we can see some movement on things that matter in our lives. Movement on infrastructure renewal. We could take some small itty bitty steps toward immigration reform because take the word comprehensive out of immigration reform, that adjective is, is a showstopper. Never gonna happen. But what if we only tried to codify the DACA program, the original DACA program for those who are eligible while closing the door on rinse and repeat the problem we faced since the 1980s? And what about what about 
genuine relief for desperate Americans in the midst of this COVID crisis, in the midst of a crisis of homelessness and people falling out of the bottom of, I saw it at the grocery store today. I saw a man, maybe in his fifties, clearly homeless with his, with his um, grocery cart full of his belongings. And he was standing there in the middle of the parking lot waiting for someone to offer him help. And he burst into tears. And I was a coward. I should have gone to him and said, what can I do to help? But I didn't. I should have, but I didn't. Individually, we've got to get better at this, taking care of one another. But we've also got to have a Congress that extends insurance, unemployment insurance. We've got to have a PPP program that only helps small businesses. The businesses who have no stockholders and no credit. If we don't have a PPP program for small businesses, we're not going to be able to save the restaurant industry beyond big franchisees like Ruth Chris Steakhouses. And you know what? Small business creates 80% of the nation's jobs. We've got to provide food assistance. Have you seen the lines of people who've never needed help before who now need food assistance? We got to make sure if people get COVID that they can get care. They won't be able to get the fancy, you know, antibody experimental drugs that Rudy Giuliani got this week. Only friends of the president can get those. But we do need to make sure that a gentleman like that person I saw this morning and again, whom, whom I should have helped. My only excuse was I had no cash on me. Um, <clears throat> but I feel bad. I do feel guilty. I do feel I'll be ready the next time. Because each of us, each of us is our brother's keeper. And that could have been, that could have been such a way to improve the lives of Americans in such a closely divided House of Representatives. Maybe they could have even taken the first step toward reducing the cost of healthcare for all of us by tackling the high cost of medications and by ensuring we never again experience a, a ransom attempt for basic medications by bringing such essential services as the making of active ingredients in our medicines and PPE, you know, protective personal gear for healthcare workers, we've got to be able to make those things in the USA again. And if that means we need to give some government protection um, or, or use the Defense Production Act to help those people with the big, those types of businesses with the big capital expenses needing, needed to start a new assembly line, then we've got to do that. And we got to make sure that we can build those businesses in a sustainable way within the free market. And those are little things. Those are things which guys in the middle of American politics, the people who represent 80% of us who know we are our brother's keeper. 
those are the kinds of, of things they could have gotten done with a five seat democratic majority because it would have forced compromise. It would have forced movement toward the middle. And if we move toward the middle, we can actually attack climate change in ways we can all agree are helpful. Weatherproofing homes, offices, schools, through a variety of public and private programs. Ending gridlock traffic, you know, because the gridlock standing there not moving while your exhaust pipe goes contributes more than anything else except um, uh, methane gas to um, dirty skies. So if we could end gridlock traffic with more usable transit solutions and additional road construction, wouldn't that be wonderful? And isn't that achievable in a closely divided Congress? We could support research into clean burning fuels, into electric cars, into hybrids, and into renewable energy we've not yet thought about. And you know what all those kinds of ideas have in common? They create a lot of jobs and those are not minimum wage jobs. A closely divided House of Representatives could have been a source for wealth equalization. None of that is pie in the sky. None of that is beyond the expectations of the vast majority of Americans, whether they are Republican, Democratic, or Independent. But, and it's a very, very big but, after 125 Republicans in the House of Representatives, including the House Minority Leader and the House Whip, signed on to a letter supporting Texas's effort to cancel the votes of more than 10 million American voters in order to overturn an election and help a defeated president remain in office. Their embrace of autocracy. Well, I think that changes the dynamic. But you know what? I'm not going to give the left a pass on this one either. You got a closely divided house. The squad's not in charge. Whatever in their little heads they think, they're not in charge. The American people don't want to hear from the extremes. They want to hear from the center. So I'm not giving the left a pass here either. Their immediate response to the Supreme Court decision to reject Texas's suit out of hand? <laughs> well... The Supreme Court and a great many elected officials in the states, not 17 um, secretaries, of, uh, attorney generals in uh, largely red states in the middle of the country, they don't get, you know, they get no glory here. Um, but when the Supreme Court and, and state elected officials, Republicans and Democrats in all four of those states, and the senior senator from Texas have dramatically demonstrated the continued value and the resilience of our constitutional institutions, 
What does the left do? They come immediately with their familiar refrain, eliminate the electoral college. It's not going to happen. Add states to ensure democratic control of the Senate. It's not going to happen. Pack the Supreme Court. It's not going to happen. All of this misreads the mood of the electorate. And it's equally unhelpful to the 125 members, Republican members who signed on to an amicus letter supporting Texas's effort to cancel the votes of 10 million Americans, of their fellow Americans, including some of the voters in their own states. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of mindless if it weren't so mind boggling. So if you take all of this together, I think you have to say at the moment that both sides of the aisle have now successfully poisoned the well of narrow targeted cooperation that could have improved the lives of every man, woman, and child in this country. Just how many of those moderate proposals I enumerated above How many of those do you think can find a majority of support in the House and the Senate after the personal acrimony of this past week? And how much worse will be the poison in that well if there's no, if there is an open challenge to the Electoral College vote, which has now been threatened when the Electoral College vote is read in Congress on January the 6th. Just how much more poison do you think that will pour into the well of distrust in the Congress? What is laid bare by the Republican House members brazen in your face repudiation of their own voters is that they don't care one whit They don't care one whit about working for the people of the United States of America. What they care about, what that 125 members of the House of Representatives care about is their own power and their own pleasure. They know full well that on January 20th, 2021, Joe Biden will become the president of the United States of America. And so with 3000 of their constituents dying every day of COVID, the worst death toll in the developed world, this week, this week, we broke six of the top 10 one day death tolls in American history. Before We're far into this week before Christmas week. Pearl Harbor will fall off that top 10 list, driven by these daily COVID numbers. And still, the 125 members of the House House GOP caucus remain unwilling to face their constituents with the cold, hard truth. Mr. Trump did not do a good job managing the pandemic. And as a consequence, he didn't do a good job of managing the economy. In fact, if you look at the statistics, he didn't do such a great job of managing the economy in any one of the last four years. Deregulation is not the same as economic growth. 
take it from somebody who's studied economics, who's practiced economics for her professional life. The American people want to give someone else a chance as a result of that performance. Okay. And I'm going to try to work with that new team to make your life better. That's what every one of your hundred of those 125 members of the House GOP should have told their people, their own people. Mr. Trump didn't do a good job managing the pandemic. And as a result, the economy, the American people decided they wanted to give somebody else a chance. And me, Ms. or Mr. Member of the House GOP caucus, I am going to try my best to work with this new team coming into the White House for one goal, to make your life, you, my constituents' life better. Nope. Nope. Instead of truth and leadership and maybe just a modicum of courage, just a teeny tiny bit. The, the trust that you, the voter, would keep them in office if they did a good job for you. Okay. Now, you know, if, if, if it, did they, did they accept that, that if they did a good job for you, you'd be good to them? No, no, they didn't. They went with fear. What they fear most in life is a disparaging tweet from Mar-a-Lago or a primary challenge from the far right. Let's call a spade a spade, a primary challenge from QAnon. And that challenge would, of course, possibly, maybe, just possibly be supported by one of those nasty tweets from Mar-a-Lago. Their fear was so great that despite what they knew in their own hearts and minds, they signed the letter supporting Texas's outrageous demands and will probably challenge the constitutionality <clears throat> of, of the electoral college vote when that vote is, is read as is required by the constitution and accepted in Congress on January the 6th. You know what? They're gonna make that challenge and they're gonna lose again. See Ben Sass note above. <clears throat> they will persist even knowing that they are sowing more seeds of congressional gridlock. And that resulting gridlock will only serve to increase the level of anger and the desperation in this country. And to me, that makes no sense. I don't know if it makes sense to you. I fear if you're listening to this podcast at this point, no, you doesn't make sense to you to increase the gridlock. What we need are results. And we were on the path to get a few of them. Nothing transformative. Just a few steps further down the line toward a more perfect union. Just teeny tiny baby steps. That's all any of us asked. But instead, we'll get an increase in the level of anger and desperation. Steve Scalise, let me talk to you for a moment because you, more than almost anyone else in the country, have personally experienced that anger. 
and you are reminded daily when you rise from your bed of what can happen when you incite a mob to violence. I remember I was in Washington, D.C. the day that Steve Scalise was shot. It scarred me. Certainly he knows that the incitement to mob violence, urging gridlock or, or the overthrowing of a legitimate election raises the possibility that some individual will feel compelled to act on their anger and desperation, causing injury and potentially death to another person. So Steve Scalise, because you know all this, I mean, I'm scarred by having been there, having been in the Capitol, having seen the Capitol locked down that day. You, Steve Scalise, you were at the heart of that matter. No one in the country today has a greater responsibility to stand up for the rule of law and a rapid lowering of the political tension and discourse in this country right this very moment. Steve Scalise, nobody has a bigger responsibility to lower the temperature of that political tension than you do, because you know so personally what the consequences can be. You have a bully pulpit among your Republican brethren. You must use it. You must remind these members of Congress that next time it could be one of them instead of you, or it could be worse. It could be innocence on the streets of America. God help us. And while I, I fear the incitements to violence, um, and I get a few, experience a few on my Twitter feed, most of all, I mourn the loss of optimism about what, have could, what could have been a renewed common sense approach to governing for all of us. And while I mourn that loss of optimism, that expectation that we would see a renewed common approach to our governance, I still cling ever so tightly to at least a little bit of hope. Hope that someone in the Congress can step forward and say, enough. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.